negative. December 2nd, 23 days to Christmas. You ready? All of a sudden, it seems like here it is. I don't even remember where fall went. Winter came on Tuesday. And it seems like every time you turn around, things are beginning to change. A lot of people are looking at this time of the year saying, I've got so much to do, so many things. I hope the kids like it. I hope it's the right present. I hope I get the right thing. I hope they're happy this year. I hope I have a job next year. So when I looked at the concept of everything we're doing here in the book of Philippians, and I knew we were in that season of all the ups and downs and emotional things that go along with this time of the year, I thought, what a great time to talk about contentment and anxiety. Not that any of you face it, but it may help you help somebody else who realizes this time of the year is filled with all kinds of anxiety and worry. And every once in a while, you're trying to hope everybody for the first time in ever is happy. Right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're winding down. We're finishing up next Sunday morning, Philippians chapter 4. We're also setting aside the book. We're going to be done with it next Sunday morning, and I looked at it, and I thought, even though we're not specifically in the Christmas season, this particular message is absolutely perfect for this time of year. Last Sunday morning, we started chapter 4, where Paul said, I need you to stand firm. Now, he's writing to people who are uncertain about life, their future, their Christianity. Everything was on the line. They had no idea whether they were going to live through it all, whether they were going to be able to maintain their Christianity, worship together, whether or not the Romans were going to oppress them or some other nation was going to oppress them. They were also worried financially. Their leader was in jail. How far is this Christianity going to go? How long will it last? Can I maintain it? That could have been written yesterday. We're in a very unpredictable time, a very uncertain time. The world around us many times seems to be spinning out of control. And when you look at it, you've got to wonder, what's going to happen next? Can it get any worse? <laughs> Just so you know, yes, but when you look at it, you think, okay, Paul, you're writing to very similar people in very similar circumstances. And also what you've got to remember is Scripture was not written to Americans. It was written to the world. So you can't always look at life and the uncertainty of life or the thing going on around you from your own grid. But recognize there are people all over the world going through incredibly difficult and uncertain times. And Paul is writing to the world as God gives us life and his word. In the middle of all of that uncertainty, stand firm. Not because you have enough fortitude, stand firm in the Lord. Secondly, you've got to deal with some relationships. There's some things a little out of control. I know it, you know it, I've got family do it. There are just all kinds of things out of control. And every once in a while, you've got to walk into those settings, especially if you're both believers, especially if you're all sitting in the same church, and work through that process. Third, you've got to get happy, not with circumstances, situations, or people, but with yourself and who you are. And you've got to quit worrying about everything, but commit it all to Him. You ready? You've got sermon notes this morning in your bulletin. Take them out as we walk through it. I'm going to do things out of order because they fit together, I think. In this context, next Sunday, we'll wrap it all up. Chapter 4, Philippians, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned. You just had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, 
I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything or all this through him who gives me strength. If we're honest, Paul's claim to be content in every single circumstance is sometimes hard. A lot of times we're content when the right things fall into place. I'm I'm content when I find the right job, when I get the right house, when I have just enough money. A lot of people live like contentment is dependent on circumstances. I'm like that sometimes. When all the pieces fall into place, when I know it's okay, when I know I'm okay or circumstances are okay, then I'm happy. When things get a little bit out of wire or out of line, then I'm a little bit uptight. Many people believe that contentment is found in things, and so they spend a lot of time and energy on things. Some think that it's just right around the corner. If I can just get through this phase, it'll be there. When I finally get that job, when I finally get that promotion, when I finally get that right, if I just can marry the right person, everything will fall into place. And then if we just get the right house in the right neighborhood, and then if we have that first child, things will come together when I have children. How naive are you? <laughs> and then those children grow up to be teenagers, and you know nothing will be right after that. So you get them through that phase, you send them out into the world, you no longer have to worry about them anymore, right? Yeah. My wife keeps saying to anybody who asks, I thought if I could be there when they were two, three, four, seven, go to junior high, go to senior high, everything would be okay. We'd send them out the door, they'd get married, and everything would be all right. We wouldn't have to pray anymore as hard. Now we're praying harder. And there's all those steps and phases that you go through. The cycle never ends. Someone said, Who's more content, the person with 10 children or the person with $10 million? What do you think? The person with 10 children, because they don't want any more. <laughs> the one with 10 million, they're always going to want just a little bit more. Most people are usually always in that context where they're trying to figure out whether it's my disappointment with life, maybe my home life, my job. I'm just in a loveless marriage. And it's not what I thought it would be, or these financial challenges are enormous. If I could just get over them, if I could just have enough, life would be okay. You do know that discontentment starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden when they literally had everything. I mean, imagine in your mind, go back and look at it in the book of Genesis. I mean, here's a couple, the only two people, they didn't have to interact with anybody else, and didn't have kids, they only have one another. And they're literally living in the Garden of Eden. Now, I know you haven't been there. You don't know where it's at. Everybody's tried to find it ever since. But I'm telling you, they literally did. You talk about having it all. They had it all. I mean, there wasn't anything they could imagine they didn't have. And all of a sudden, the enemy comes. Satan walks into their lives and said, are you sure? I mean, I know you got it all. I'm looking around. This is amazing. But you know, there's that one tree. Just that one, if you just took a bite of that, whatever, it's not always an apple, it's not an apple. If you did, then, then you would find it. And what's fascinating, people who literally had everything did it. And gave into that and found that it didn't supply at all. Now if you study Paul's life, you know he had times of incredible joy 
and times when he thought his heart would break. He understood betrayal and what it made it worse. It was people who had faith in Christ. He dealt with the uncertainty of the future of his ministry. He was threatened, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, spent time in jail. People let him down. He's extremely vulnerable in 2 Corinthians. You ought to read that book. I mean, there were times he thought he was going to die, and there were other times he wished he would die. And now he's writing to the Philippians about contentment in jail. Now, I don't know about you, but I say this guy has some things to teach us. Because his life didn't have all its act together, didn't have all the things in place, wasn't going purpose, perfect, didn't know if he was even going to live through this jail experience because he wasn't sure about the other ones. And he writes to us about contentment. i got to believe he's got some things to say. Look in your notes. The first thing you notice about his contentment is that it didn't come naturally. Look at what it says. I have what? I've learned. It didn't happen when he woke up one morning. It wasn't because of a song or a sermon. It was a result of a life committed to development. It was a result of a life committed to growing. Paul was a lifelong learner. And he learned that it was a process, not an event. Now I've got it. I'm there. I've arrived. Not a bit. And the thing you notice about Paul, he didn't say he had it mastered or down pat. Look at what it says in chapter 3. I'm a work in progress. So are you. So am I. We're not there yet. We're learning and we're trying to figure it out day by day. What's fascinating about Paul and being this kind of learner, the mornings when he woke up discontented, he knew exactly what to do with it. Look at verse 4. I take it to God. I take it to God. I come to him with and for perspective. Verse 4, my joy comes from the Lord, not my circumstances. And Paul, when he woke up in mornings where that was not true and he felt it may be a result of circumstances because he's in jail, he said, I got to realize I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning to transition my mind so that it's not about my circumstances. It's about him. He took it to God to keep life in perspective. I've learned doesn't infer perfection or completion, but a willingness to keep learning through the journey of life. One of the blessings of being here for a long period of time is that you get to watch people develop. I get to watch kids in high school now become adults and get married. I get to watch all of that journey in people's lives as they deepen their walk with God. I get to watch older people mature. And you know as well as I do, older people who mature can get bitter or better. And a lot of them just is a delight to watch them get better. On Friday morning, I had the opportunity, or afternoon I guess it was, to visit one of my Favorite all-time guys, Vic Brown, who was an elder here for a number of years. When I came here, he sat here at my interview like this. I'm thinking, I'm never going to win this guy over. And he became one of my best friends. For years, while he was still active, he went around every single Sunday morning and prayed over every aspect of our sanctuary. He went through the children's wing and prayed over every single classroom for years. To my knowledge, nobody's ever taken his place in that. What I loved about Vic is that he continued to learn. No matter what age he was at, i got to learn more. I want to learn more. Did you read this book? Have you read that book? The guy's 89 years old right now, and he constantly would share with me what God is teaching him and what he's learning. I love those kinds of people. Friday, I, we had an opportunity to say goodbye. There was a guy here a long time ago who made the transition into the sanctuary. He was here all of his life. I think literally all of his life a member of Community Alliance Church. 
And you can't even imagine the transition that if you've been here forever, you've watched somebody go through of hymns and choruses and piano and organ and praise team and all the things that go with that and then changing the flow and changing the service and changing the sanctuary and now sitting in an auditorium. What I loved about Curly is every once in a while I watch him sing songs that I knew he had no idea what they were, but he would try. And it wasn't the hymn that he was used to. It wasn't the organ playing. He just loved God. And it wasn't a matter of circumstances or situations or life that it used to be. It was, what am I doing now? And I'm just loving God. Mark Batterson in his book Primal says some great things. God has created us with a capacity to keep learning until the day we die. And we should never take that for granted. The average brain is the size of a softball, weighs approximately three pounds. Yet neurologists estimate that we have the capacity to learn something new every second of every minute of every hour of every day for the next three million years. So you done? Not hardly. It's not only an incredible luxury, it's an unbelievable responsibility and even a stewardship issue. It's impossible to pinpoint what percentage of our mind we use, but there's a lot of untapped potential for all of us. Your imagination is capable of imagining more than you can possibly imagine, if you think about it. This is what I want you to hear. Yet somewhere along the way, a lot of people start live, stop living out of imagination and start living out of memory. And when we stop living out of the future and imagination and start repeating the past, it was the day we stopped living and start dying. You get that phrase? The moment we stop thinking about learning and growing and developing our walk with God and getting deeper with Him, the moment we stop learning, we stop living. And the moment we stop thinking about what God wants to teach us and what I can learn and where I can grow, then we start dying. Contentment's not void of emotions in your notes. Some think that if I'm just not controlled by my emotions like you can imagine I am, then I can find contentment. Not true at all. I believe Paul was angry. I believe he was frustrated. I believe he felt sorrow. He never denied his emotions, but in your notes, he didn't let them dictate or dominate his thinking or his attitude about life. That is the key. He just didn't let his emotions or circumstances dominate his thinking or dictate how he responded to people in life. He wasn't in prison saying, the sun will come out tomorrow. Or listening to some motivational speaker on his iPad or iPod. He wasn't content because of the circumstances. He was content in his relationship. It is more than positive thinking that if I were to name it, claim it, God will fix it, change it, or heal it. And God can do all of that and more. But contentment is more than just my negative circumstances going away. If it's dependent on circumstances, then it's as fickle as the wind. Genuine contentment comes when I deal with my issues and my frustrations and I bring them to God. And let him speak into my life and my circumstances. When I honestly decide that I'll trust him even though my circumstances don't make sense. And if I were really honest, I don't even like them. But I trust him. It can come when I enjoy who I am and what I have. When I can enjoy how I'm wired, how I'm made, who I am. And not always try to be somebody I'm not. But when it comes to being who I am and I'm okay with that. And it comes to being comfortable with what I have instead of always looking for more. You know you do not have to have the latest version of everything, right? I mean, y'all know that, right? 
You don't have to have the latest version of everything. Now, I know if you're in IT and all that other stuff, you're making sure we get the latest version because the other one's already broke. You can think of that later. If your source of contentment is in possessions or people, two things are going to happen. One is you're putting a lot of pressure on people. And secondly, you'll soon find out after you get the thing you need, you'll want something more, just a little bit bigger or a little bit better. People, places, and possessions are not sources, they're resources. They do not have the power to give us what only God can provide. They're never designed to be all we need for life and happiness. Only God is. Connie and I got married at 19. When we got married, we had expectations of one another. Connie thought she was marrying a man who would satisfy her deepest longings, provide a thorough ride of emotional intimacy and constant affirmation. So she pretty much got what she wanted, right? (laughs) The truth is, she got ripped off. (laughs) Both of us are incapable of filling each other's deepest needs of the soul. We cannot expect our mate or people to provide what only God can do. But in 41 years of ministry, I see it all the time of people who expect their mate to satisfy their deepest longings and provide for them everything they can possibly need out of life. And when they don't, they either walk away from it or just get insatisfied. Only God can fulfill the deepest need of your soul. When he gives you a great soul mate, say, I am so blessed as I am for the last 45 years. That's why Paul said, look, there's no way I can do this on my own. I can do this through Christ who gives me strength. The best translation of that verse is that. I can do this. We translate it all things. Can I be really honest? You cannot do all things. You want to be Michael Jordan and you don't have the capacity to do that, you can know Jesus till the day you die. You won't be Michael Jordan. You won't be Brett Favre. You won't be whoever. That is. What he is saying is, look, I've learned to have a lot. I've learned in the middle of little. I've learned in the middle of relationships. I've learned in the middle of it all that there's no way I can do this on my own. Not by willpower, not by sheer thinking it through. I can only do this through Christ. Which is why he said, I've had all the other stuff and I realized it didn't satisfy. Only Jesus. And when I embrace Jesus as my Savior and line him up first, everything else falls into place and it's awesome. Paul learned to be content because he knew his contentment wasn't dependent on having a lot or a little or being in the right place or in accolades or achievements, but in Christ. Contentment in your sermon notes is a byproduct of a way of living or a way of life. A life that's not defined by people or possessions, acquisitions or portfolios or big churches in my case. Doesn't mean you don't do your best, work hard and live up to your potential. It just means that I make sure that I put all of it in perspective. It means I do it all for the right reasons and I'm trying to learn how to do it more and more every day. I am learning, not I have it mastered. Second piece of advice Worry and anxiety. Anybody have anything to worry about? Uh, you're worrying about whether I raise my hand, my wife's going to think it's her, him. I get that. Every single one of us, if we're really flat out honest, there's something in our lives that we worry a little bit about. 
Something that maybe this time of year or in the circumstances of our life or the uncertainty of the future or my career or the economy or whatever, there's a little bit of angst that goes into life. And I get that. Paul gets that. We worry about our kids, our finances, the economy, the future, our job. There's a lot to worry about. And it seems, if we're really honest, a little bit more every day. I know you've heard this before, and I probably have said it. Life now is di very different than me growing up in the 60s in Mayberry. And as well as for many of us. I mean, life is no longer Mayberry RFD. And for most of you, you're going, I don't even know where that's at. It's a little town in North Carolina. It doesn't matter. Andy Griffith. And life is drastically different than when I grew up in the 60s. But we also grew up in the 60s when everything was uncertain. And we weren't sure really what was going to happen in life or the future. And as the years progressed and the decades began to trickle off, you and I both realized raising kids and raising family today is extremely scary. And the uncertainty of life is there in front of us every day. Paul said, I, I know that. So let me give you some advice. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Don't be anxious about anything, verse 6, but in the big things. No? In what? Every situation. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And his answer is the peace of God that transcends all understanding and it'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul, Peter, and James say almost the same thing. Paul said, cast all your anxiety on him. Peter said, cast all your anxiety on him. Paul said, don't be anxious about anything. James says, count it joy when you go through circumstances. And if we're honest, we want to say, you count it joy, I want to worry. And I get that, I understand that. Jesus tells us over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about life, don't worry about things. But sometimes that's easier to quote than to live. Paul tells us, don't be anxious about anything. And the verse breaks down, those two verses, 6 and 7, break down in three easy parts. You see them in your notes. The issue is anxiety, the solution is prayer, the results are peace. If we're really honest, we would like to say it this way. The issue is anxiety, the solution is prayer, the results answers. I'd rather have answers than peace, right? That's what sometimes we would say. Now, God does answer in unbelievable ways. I've seen God answer prayers that blew my mind. I saw God raise one individual years ago back in her old sanctuary from the dead. I've seen him heal cancer. I've seen him heal broken limbs. I've seen him restore sight. I've seen God do incredible things and answer unbelievable amount of prayers. But what's fascinating about here is that Paul says God has something sometimes a little bit better for you than answers, and the result is peace. Not always the answers. Sometimes on a Sunday, I'll have somebody come up, many times on a Sunday, have somebody come up and pray. And a lot of times I'll, I'll share this phrase. I'll pray over them, pray for them, absolutely convinced that God could take that away like that. But when I do, I pray that God, in the middle of it all, would you give them a peace that doesn't make sense? A peace that passes all understanding as they keep their hearts and mind stayed on you. Not their cancer, not their disease, not their issue, but on you. Michelle shared her story on Thanksgiving Eve, and it was really powerful. What's fascinating about that is she said, you know what, I would have never expected that. Peace. In the middle of cancer and being so young and not certain when your life was going to go or where it was going to go or you'd see your kids raised, 
I was overwhelmed with the fact that God gave me a peace that did not make sense, even in the middle of all of that. In this passage, he says to us on a number of occasions, God knows what you need, but he also knows what you need the most. And what you probably need the most at this point is peace. Prayer not only changes people and circumstances, it also affects the person praying, which is why Paul said over and over again, I just want you to come and talk to God. I I just want you to share with him. I want him to let you know what's going on. I want you to let him know what's going on. I want you to discover in the middle of it all that one of the byproducts of trusting God is peace. I want you to just have a conversation with God about everything. And many times you're going to do it on a regular basis. I grew up where there was this catchy phrase, we all had phrases, but there was this catchy phrase, let go and let God. Bring it to the altar, leave it there, and walk away. Trust God. If you don't trust God, then you're going to take it back with you, and if you start worrying about it after you left it up there, you didn't really leave it up there. That's like the person that says, if you have faith, God will heal you, and if you didn't, he didn't heal you, you don't have enough faith. Well, how are you going to work through that? One's not dependent on the other. I don't care what they teach in other churches, that's not true. I also found that it wasn't true to just simply let go and let God. I did understand that it was necessity to come and just tell him everything. But I also saw some biblical examples of Paul where he went to God and said, God, I want to be really honest with you. I do not like this thorn in my flesh. All kinds of theories about what it would be. Some think it's eyesight. Others aren't really sure. I'd rather you take that away. And it wasn't like it said, you know, today. How about tomorrow? How about the next day? Could have been a week later, a month later, where Paul said, God, I, by the way, I don't like this thorn in the flesh. I'd love for you to take it away. A week or two later, who knows? God, you may have been busy. Things were kind of noisy when I shared it. But if you could, I'd love for you to take this away. Three times he went to God. And sometimes we look at Scripture as one, two, three, and they're done. It could have been over an extended period of time where Paul just continually said, God, I'd love for you to take this away. And God said, Paul, I can, but I got something better for you. I got grace. I got something better than any answer that you're looking for. I got something better than taking that away. In a thousand other cases, God immediately took it away. He used Paul to take it away. But in this case, Paul got something a little bit better for you. It's grace. Sufficient for whatever you need. Persistent widow, if you write it down in your sermon notes in Luke 18, it's the story of a lady who came to a judge who didn't even know God. And she just kept banging at the door, and finally the judge said, all right, all right, grant a request. So it's not a matter of just simply saying, if I keep going, God will finally answer. He'll finally give in. It's not a matter of that at all. It's just what you see in your sermon notes. Number one, just simply talk to him. Tell him what's going on in your life. Tell him what's happening. Share with him how you feel. Sometimes we make prayer either so complicated or sound so pious that we forget to make it real. If I were to walk up to any of you here this morning who I knew would be scared to death, would I say, I want you to stand up right now and pray in front of the whole audience and close the service. You would have a heart attack. I probably would have to raise you from the dead. (laughs) Some of you would be so comfortable with that, it would be no problem. Others of you would die. If I ask you to, not because you're inadequate, not because you don't know how to talk or you don't even know English. It's because you're so afraid to do that in front of a lot of people. Prayer is not that complicated, nor does it need to sound so pious. I I grew up with preachers whose voice changed when they prayed. 
they would have this ongoing conversation with me, and then all of a sudden, at the end of the service, dear Heavenly Father, <laughs> we come in thy name, and it would all be in King James English. They never spoke that way. Now, not everybody, and at the other side, don't get so, hey, God, what's up? I mean, don't get so flippant with God. <laughs> Every once in a while, you want to say, I'll show you what's up. You are. You're out of here right now. So it's not a matter of being flippant, and it's not a matter of being so pious or being so complicated. It is a conversation with God. Prayer is about real issues, real problems, in real language to a real God. He's talking to him and telling him how he feels. Second piece of advice Paul gives us here is tell him what you want. Tell him what you want. Ask. What is it you want him to do? He not only gives us permission, he gives us instructions, sermon notes. Ask boldly, Hebrews 4, 16. Ask specifically and ask in Luke 18 persistently. Now, you've got to remember, he may not give you what you want, which is why I think 419 is in here, but he will give you what you need. I will supply all of your needs. And one of your needs may be peace, maybe grace, maybe a friend. It may be going to heaven. But I'll give you what I know you need, because I know you best, he says. Paul didn't get his thorn removed, but what he did get was a bigger gift, grace. Third thing he said, ask with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is fascinating, because it all of a sudden forces me. I, th- I'm glad you're here this morning, but this whole sermon is for me. From the contentment side to the worry side. Yeah, ask my wife. She will say, yeah, Denny was preaching to himself. So I, and I, I just, I'm honest enough to tell you that. But what I, I love about these reminders, when you pray with thanksgiving, it forces you, it forces me. Yeah, God, you're right. Man, am I blessed. Man, am I blessed. And then I'll list them every once in a while. And whatever that the list sometimes is so huge, I forget what I asked for to begin with. It has nothing to do with my age. But I forget what I started asking to begin with because the list is, is really large. And, and Thanksgiving forces us to do that. Thanksgiving gives us perspective. It reminds us in your notes that God is in control. And it reminds us to trust in him even when I don't understand. You got to read the psalm. A lot of times when I'm going through waters, I, just, I read the psalms. Half of the Psalms are David telling God exactly how he feels and exactly what he wants God to do in really clear language. The other thing that's fascinating about the Psalm, he'll vent. And then I'll say, but you, O God, are sovereign. And he'll go through this, it'll start out this way, and he'll go down that valley, and almost in every Psalm, he comes up on the other side and said, I trust you, God. I love the promise in verse 7, of course, and the peace of God that doesn't make sense, it transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind, which are both critical in him. Even in the middle of our difficulty, God gives us an inner sense of contentment, which, if we're really honest, doesn't make sense, but it's really one of the greatest gifts he could give. Now, when I looked at the sermon, and I realized that we had moved communion away from a couple of weeks ago because of the storm to today, I thought it's perfect. Because they're the most vivid visual reminders of amazing grace. And it forces us to be thankful. It forces us to say, God, you gave your life. This is the Christmas season. You gave your son so that I could have forgiveness and grace and life. 
Incredible. And so when you have the elements in your hands, you're reminded that you're going to get life from Christ and Christ alone. And if you do that, everything else falls underneath that. And you also get another gift called forgiveness. I don't have to carry my past. I don't have to worry about my past. I come to him and ask for forgiveness, and he washes it away. And in these two gifts that you hold are the simplest things he could have ever done, you get the reminder of God's amazing grace. So this morning when the communion stewards and servers come in a minute and they serve you all over the campus, hold on to them for a minute. I'll lead you in a prayer at the end. But what I'd love for you to do is just spend some moments in gratitude and thanksgiving. And if indeed there's something in your heart or soul that you're worried or anxious about, you haven't yet found contentment, tell them and talk to him and let him hear you. Communion servers, if you'll come all over this campus is a tray if you've never been here before with the cups on the outside, the bread on the inside. Help somebody beside you. Make sure everybody is served and then you wait for a moment and we'll share it together.
always hesitate for a moment because I want the servers to have the same privilege you do, and that is to spend some time with God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, on the weekend, he was betrayed, abandoned, neglected, beaten, left hung to die. He said, this is where you get life. This is where you get forgiveness. Every time you do it, remember me. Never forget what I've done and what I offer. Life, forgiveness, combined equals grace. It's incredible. Enjoy it. Father, help us not only just to enjoy it and celebrate it, but to never forget it. I, I'm still blown away that you said, every time you do this, remember me. How could we ever forget what you've done? But we know in the midst of life and circumstances and situations, it's easy to do. And so thank you for these reminders where we come back together and we are, again, having the opportunity to celebrate your grace. So help us to embrace it, to enjoy it, to celebrate it, and then to live it out and demonstrate it. Bless us in everything we do as we follow after you. In the name of Christ, we pray. If you have a child in kindergarten to fifth grade, 10 minutes from now is family experience. It's a great opportunity to find out how you can celebrate and learn and grow as a family. Great concert tonight. You don't want to miss it. See you tonight and see you next Sunday. We're going to wrap Philippians up.